from Optimized Health, this is the True Health Podcast, where we unlearn diet culture and personalize our health one tip and story at a time. My guest today is Dr. Sarah Tier. Sarah is a naturopath based in Petaluma, California, who in addition to her private practice is a member of the California Naturopathic Doctors Association and the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians. She is passionate about finding and treating underlying causes of illness instead of only serving the resulting symptoms. She has co-authored several books on natural health and frequently consults patients on food allergies, in addition to a variety of other common issues like digestive disorders, menopause, women's health, dementia, longevity, and much more. On a personal note, uh, which I have permission to share, um, my wife, Laura, is her biggest fan in the world. She has worked wonders on um, her health journey, and um, it's been amazing to watch that unfold. So I'm excited to talk to her, my friend, amazing naturopath, Sarah. What's up? Welcome. Hi, Ethan. It's so nice to be here. I'm really honored. Awesome. Um, so let's jump into it. Let's yeah. jump right in. How are you doing today? Today, I feel really good. It's a beautiful morning. Sun is shining. The flowers are blooming. What more? What more do you need? All is good. Awesome. So um, let's talk all things about your work. You know, I really think the goal of today, and I'm always kind of open to wherever the conversation goes, um, but we touched on this before we started recording. You know, the work you do is so powerful and important, and a lot of people are unfamiliar with what it is. So maybe just to begin, like what is it what is a naturopath for people who don't know? Like can you just kind of give some background on on what you do and kind of your approach? Absolutely, I'm happy to. And naturopathic doctors have gone to naturopathic medical schools. So the first two years are very similar to an allopathic medical school where you're learning about anatomy, physiology, biochemistry. And then the second two years, rather than learning mostly about drugs and surgery, we're learning about nutrition and lab work that can make a difference in people's lives to really find and treat underlying causes of diseases and homeopathy and herbal medicine and how nutritional supplements work and what's the research behind those things. And, and so, um, it's a very good, well-rounded education. And I think that the biggest thing is to really um, treat the person as a whole, not just like, oh, my diabetic patient, Sue. It's really to sort of see all of what's going on with that person and really dig down, drill down as much as possible to find any underlying causes of problems. And, um, and then also one of the things that we do really well is focus on prevention and just health in life, you know, to, to be healthy as possible. I love it. That's amazing. So the first couple years of medical school is similar to kind of a quote unquote traditional doctor. And yeah. then the slight difference is where they might focus a little more on operation, surgery, that type side of stuff. Yours is more on kind of the prevention, natural lifestyle changes, that type of stuff. Oh, lifestyle changes, herbal medicine. And I will take the word traditional medicine. When you look at the tradition of health and healthcare in our civilization, traditional medicine really goes back many, many thousands of years. And it really is looking at herbal medicine and how to get things out of the body that shouldn't be there. So when we talk about sort of in the United States now is more conventional or allopathic medicine, that is a descriptor I prefer to use than traditional because traditional medicine is really more what I do. Yes, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And to that point, I know we were also touching on this. You were like, I'm going to get fired up, but we're going to, we're going to just jump right into it is I would love to talk more about that, about um, maybe when, uh, I think what you just, what am I trying to describe? When is it appropriate for somebody to go to each sort of type of, of physician um, within the current healthcare system, within our you know medical industry? How does somebody know when to go to what? Um, how do they work together? And that's, a, I think, an interesting question because um, I think a lot of the time I find myself, you know, obviously, especially as a health coach in the work that I do, 
so much is focused on prevention. Pretty much all is focused on prevention and kind of lifestyle change. Um, but there's obviously room for both and room for all of it. So where do you see it all working together? That's such a great question, Ethan. Well, in a perfect world, everybody would have a healthcare team and they would have their naturopathic doctor and they would have their healthcare and they would have their MD and they would really see that as a team where I'm going to go see this person for the, for these things and this person for these other things. Because what I find is that people come to me a lot of times after they've been to their allopathic doctor for months or years and not really gotten the results that they want. And so what I would love to have happen is that people go to their naturopath first and then if they really, you know, in a lot of states, naturopaths can also prescribe medication. So if you're in the state of Washington, you could just see your naturopathic doctor until you needed an operation. Really, you wouldn't have to go to a medical doctor for some other drug. And I think there is a place for medications and drugs in our in our culture. But I think that a lot of times, you know, people that have reflux is a great example of that or, or heartburn. They don't they just get put on these drugs rather than like any questions about what they're doing to cause that or any other food allergies or anything else that we could do to help that without getting put on medication. And so I do think that there's a place for those, some, you know, seeing those people. And I have some medical doctors that are very good friends too. So it's, I'm definitely not anti that, but I feel that in our culture, most of the time, because of the insurance industry, people see a doctor, they've got five minutes, they all they can do is put them on medication. And that isn't necessarily always the best thing for that situation. So, and I think that, you know, big pharma gets involved there too. And the health insurance industry, which I don't think they should get to use the word health in their name, because I don't think they give a rat's ravioli about whether you're healthy or not. Oh yeah. And I think the expense of all of that, you know, the expense of health insurance and have them mediating what people are getting for their care is just nuts. Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you think about it from that lens, part of it is, and I always think about this, part of it is exactly what you said, which is, okay, you go to the doctor, you're on there, you know, on average, I think it is like eight minutes per appointment, something like that. And so within that framework, I do have empathy for the doctor, because it's like, if they have eight minutes with somebody on average, and they have to get through X number of patients per day, like, it's literally impossible for them to do some deeper dive. But the other side of it is back to the education piece you're talking about, where a lot of the lifestyle change isn't part of the curriculum in I medical school. Any nutrition. I think nutrition is an elective. And how can we have a healthy body if we're not going to look at nutrition? Like that's the fuel that every cell lives on. So it's, it's, yeah, it's difficult. And, and it's difficult when I have people come to me and, you know, want to talk to people about their food and, oh, well, my doctor said that what I'm eating makes no difference in that. It's like, well, they, you're in a different place now. Yeah. A hundred percent. Wow. Okay. Um, so with somebody going to visit you um what is that journey like i know it's going to be different per person but if somebody ha has is listening to this and maybe they've never been yeah. now they know what it is but what is the process like um seeing you or seeing a naturopath in general yeah it's um usually a 90 minute visit is what i start with for people because i really want to get a very complete picture of everything that's going on with them when i really understand someone's whole health history when I look at that process of trying to find underlying causes of illness, if I really know what they're eating, what their stress is like, what their lifestyle is like, what their work is like, what their past medical history has been, what they've been through, how many antibiotics they've been on, I really get a much better idea of how I can really help them. So we take an hour and a half to start with. And then in that process, I'm asking them all these questions, discussing with the patient what works for them. You know, I have patients come in who have a really hard time making nutrition changes or have a really hard time swallowing a supplement. And so I find that it's really important to try to work with people where they're at. And that's one of the beauties of naturopathic medicine is that I feel that, and sometimes it's a challenge, but that I can really work with people to find what works for them without it being my way or the highway. Mm -hmm. And so 
we work together, we come up with a plan together. I'll recommend some lab testing that I think would be a good idea. And sometimes that's conventional testing, like I'll send them to Quest or LabCorp, <clears throat> excuse me. And sometimes it's more some of what I call the more alternative medicine types of testing where we're looking at heavy metals or food allergies or um, a more complete look at their digestive situation through a stool analysis. So we'll talk about all those options and I appreciate that people are paying out of pocket. So I give them a really good idea of what that's gonna look like. And then we'll do follow-up. Follow-up visits are usually about 45 minutes and um, just stick close with people to help them get the change that they want to get to. And sometimes that's meeting with people really frequently. I have some people with high blood pressure that I wanna see a little more often to make sure that we're getting that under control. And then I have people where I'm like, okay, we're trying to make hormonal changes. I don't need to see you more than once a month because we're not going to know what happened. So it really depends on what's going on with someone and how acute the situation is, how often I'll see them. Yeah. And I think what you touched on is interesting. I think what I'm hearing with it too, is like, it's a much more collaborative approach. And I think what I found, um, you know, in my own health coaching work, which again is a different framework, obviously, but the only way I've found it to work is if it's collaborative. And I think if you're coming at people in any setting, just telling them, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, but they're not learning about themselves through the process, then it doesn't stick. And so I'm sure for you, what I think is awesome is it is collaborative. It sounds like you're kind of like doing an investigation of what's going on versus exactly. just telling them you have this label, here's what we do for people like that. Right, and I think also finding out what they're already doing. I mean, everybody's been to a doctor's office and the doctor's like, well, do this, drink this water, you know, exercise or whatever. And they're already doing a bunch of these things. And like to actually find out what are you already doing? What do you like about that? What don't you like about it? Like one of the things that I think is so hard is to make changes and ask people to do things that they hate. So it's like, no, find something that you like, you know, we can work together on that. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Um, so let's go through some of those common um, challenges and common things people come to you for. Um, I'd love to kind of, we don't have to go like fully down a bulleted list, but I know there's probably four to five very common um, reasons people see you. So I guess to start, what are some of those? Like, what are the most common things people are coming to you for? Um, the most common thing for sure is digestive problems. And that okay. is a wide range of things from constipation to stomach upset, to vomiting, to, you know, diarrhea, constipation, IBS, all those things are really, really common in our culture. And I think that it's one of the areas that conventional medicine doesn't really have a good, you know, they don't really have, I think in that is part of that whole drilling down to find underlying causes. There isn't even really, like if there was a great drug to fix all of that, that's what would be happening. And there really isn't, you know, there really isn't something that really takes care of most situations. Okay. So with all of those issues like if we look at something like ibs for example which i know ibs is very broad and can be lots of different things um but maybe starting there like what are some common places people can look naturally um to resolve some of those issues it's a great question ibs i feel like is often sort of a trash can diagnosis because it doesn't really tell us what's happening and so when people come in with that same kind of process i ask them a whole bunch of questions about what their childhood was like when did this start what's made it worse what's made it better and for a lot of people one of the first things we're going to look for is food allergies or food sensitivities as a lot of people prefer to say because it's not like an anaphylactic allergy like you're gonna your throat's gonna close up but there are a lot of foods that people are eating that their body can't break down, can't properly digest and cause a lot of inflammation. And so, especially when you see somebody with these fluctuating symptoms, like sometimes they're fine. And then the next day they have no idea what happened and they're awful. A lot of times that's foods that they're eating and it's hard to pin down because a lot of times these food sensitivities are sort of a delayed hypersensitivity. So unlike the kids that are allergic to peanuts and their throat swells up when they have it, where it's really obvious, these delayed hypersensitivity reactions usually don't, don't, 
occur right away. It might be the next day. It might be a few hours later. And we don't hardly ever eat one thing. We mostly eat 12 things. So right. it's really hard to piece out what's causing it. So a food antibody panel can be a really helpful place to start for looking at that kind of thing. And then, of course, I really talk to people about how they're eating. A lot of people are sitting on the couch, they're hunched over, they're in their car, they're stressed out. And the way our digestive tract is made to work, you know, there's these sympathetic nervous system and parasympathetic nervous system, and there's like rest and digest or fight or flight. So if you're like in your car managing traffic while you're trying to eat and expect your body to absorb that and that you're going to be able to chew your food properly and get it down your esophagus in a good way, it just doesn't always happen that way. So I, I do a lot of just kind of finding out what people are doing for food consumption. That makes so much sense. Um, and I think a lot of times people don't think about the way they eat and, and what is going on as they're eating as... Um, part of their health challenge really true. and when people have like a hiatal hernia where the stomach is coming up through the diaphragm I remember one of my patients super healthy woman very proactive about her health and she was an artist and was working on a show that was coming up and she was painting these silk scarves and she was sitting on the floor and eating on the floor all hunched over and she ended up developing a hyaluronia, hernia, which feels just like heartburn. You get put on pantoprazole or whatever one of those. And it doesn't ever solve the problem really because you've got to get that stomach to go back down. And so how you eat and how relaxed you are and how much your shoulders are dropped down and you're sitting properly makes a big difference in how your gut is going to work. Wow. And it makes so much sense as you say it. It's just not something people typically think about. Um, with food allergies and food sensitivity, talk to me more about that. Um, is that a safe thing that basically everybody should get done no matter what is going on? Is that typically a place to start for kind of anything from IBS to migraines to whatever? Um, yeah, it definitely affects a lot of different things. And that's why when I talk to people when they come in and they've got IBS and migraines and eczema, I'm like, oh, for sure, we need to do food antibody testing. Should everybody be tested for that? I think that'd be a great place to start. You know, like there, if I had my perfect world where everybody had a naturopath on their team, that would be a great place to begin because nutrition and being able to absorb your nutrients is the foundation of, of all health, mm. really. And so, but, but inflammation, and especially like I do these detox workshops a couple times a year and everybody feels better, sleeps better, less joint pain. And a lot of that is to do to the food changes that we're doing, you know? So yeah, a hundred percent. It's funny. I think with food and nutrition and I'm biased and so passionate about this, but I often think about it where I'm like, a lot of the time, I think people are so obsessed with finding this like magic thing that they've never heard of that's going to fix them or like a specific supplement or a specific thing their friends doing. And I'm like, just eat basic, healthy, good, real food. And that resolves so many things. And it, in our society, a lot of the time people are eating for reasons that aren't hunger. They're eating because they're stressed or they're bored or they're procrastinating or they're drunk or they're with their friend or and it's rarely like, I'm hungry and I want the food that's going to feel good. Feel good um, make you feel good. I feel like a lot of people eat things that they don't even realize how crappy it makes them feel even in that moment, you know, mm. like if people that are drinking coffee and then having four, five Tums, it's like, it's probably not the right beverage for you. <laughs> you know? Right. A hundred percent. That's so true. Wow. Um, okay. And, and with food sensitivity and food allergy, somebody takes this test, let's say, and I know there's kind of a broad spectrum, right? There are the foods that are highly sensitive, avoid at all costs, or ideally avoid. And then there are some foods that show up on the test where it's kind of like, yeah, this would be ideal not to, but you're going to be okay. Um, is it really, hey, just avoid everything that shows up? Or is it really just avoid the ones that show up in the red kind of, and you can dabble with a variety of things. Mm -hmm. I have people avoid everything for four weeks. Even the low things can be causing problems. And I tell people like the test is really great, but you've got to be the test tube. We've got to really find out what affects your body and how. So if somebody has seven different food allergies, you know, they might have one that's causing the migraines and one that's causing the diarrhea, 
And it's really great and really powerful to find out what's doing what. So I have people avoid everything for four weeks, reintroduce them one, you know, see how they feel after four weeks. We usually check in, reintroduce them one at a time and have a lot of it at that time and really get a good idea of what's causing what problems. Because sometimes there's one that's even in the middle zone that isn't really causing any problems. Um, the lab isn't perfect. I think it's about 90 to 95% accurate, but it's not perfect. So if we can piece out what really makes a difference in your body. And when people see that and feel that, let's say dairy is a great example because it's so common. When you realize how dairy really makes you feel, oh, a lot of people don't want it so much anymore. And it's a really hard one to get people to change. So if you can really see this really doesn't make you feel good. Eggs are a great one. I think eggs are a very healthy food. For me, they caused me to have like this sinusy brain fog and mm. it just doesn't make me want to eat them so much. Anymore. Yeah. And well, so they know that it's you know, like, I can eat eggs. If my husband makes a frittata, I'm going to eat it, but I'm not going to eat them every day. Yeah. And I think, I think noticing how you feel is something that people aren't aware of because so many people just kind of chronically feel like shit basically mm -hmm. yeah. or or off quote unquote in some way or bloated quote unquote like these are all things that mean other things that are just kind of like broadly not feeling well all the time um and all I right. think we do things to try to make ourselves feel well fatigue is a great example of that I see a lot of people for fatigue and so they do all these uppers bunch of coffee or things like that which don't really not very nutrient dense doesn't really give your body what it needs and they're b12 deficient or they need more sleep so you're doing these things that are kind of really making your overall problem worse and not making you feel good you know yeah a hundred percent um what about migraines i have to say and this is where i have to and again got her permission laura specifically said to thank you again for this but she, for example, um, for anybody listening, ultimate case study for how amazing Sarah is. Uh, she's had migraines her whole life. It's been in her family um, her whole life and was taking super intense medication for this since she was a kid. And it was just kind of like, this is what we do. We take this medication. It will knock you out. You'll come back an hour later. And now um that among other things is one of the things where she doesn't really get migraines anymore and if she starts to sense it coming on she has natural remedies and oils and all this stuff and massaging her head in certain ways and it just kind of goes away and so that to me just seeing that on the front lines has been mind-blowing i'm like wow this is like incredible to watch this happen but migraines i know that's so common so what about migraines? What What's the deal? So many people, I feel like, talk about it as I'm just born with this and there's nothing I can do. Right. When people say it's familial, like that is sort of their sentence and there's nothing, you know, they don't even, that isn't even why they're seeing me. That's just something that's in their health history. I'm like, well, it might be familial, but so might the dairy allergy or so might, you know, yeah. meat allergy or something like that. These, these foods that people can't digest properly cause a lot of inflammation and wherever your weak spot is, and that is probably familial, the weak spot being the migraines, or I have people where, you know, grandpa had eczema, mom had eczema, my two aunts have eczema. So I'm just going to have eczema. It's like, no, probably everybody has that same gene for not being able to break down wheat. And so, yeah, wow. So I think with migraines, it's such a, it's very complex in a lot of ways too. Sometimes food sensitivities don't really completely fully fix that, but there's a lot of other deficiencies and inflammatory markers that can contribute to that. Not only that hormones for sure can play a role in that as we know. So there's a lot of things that we can fix naturally that can really make a big impact. Hmm. That's fantastic. Um, what about menopause talk to me about menopause this is something yeah. I, I yeah well i was just gonna say i i feel like and even clients of mine who will kind of talk about it um and admittedly i'm not the expert for this one um but but i will say you know it i think when i've heard other people speak about it it's i mean similar to what we're talking about it's kind of this all right this is just menopause and blanket this is menopause that's it so 
So give me like the one-on-one on menopause. When can people expect it? What are common symptoms? What, what can people do to like give the, the uh, overview? Sure. Yeah. When I look down at the things that I think people see me for most, the digestive stuff is very, very closely followed by hormonal issues. Menopause being one of the most problematic ones, fertility for sure. I see people for that and PMS, um, menopause for many women, they, they get to this point in life and they're just like plugging along and things are groovy. And then all of a sudden they're like hit by a Mack truck. So it can happen anywhere between 40 and about 55 years old. 40 is a little on the young side, but definitely see that. I would say more like 48 to 53 is really what happens for most women. You're very likely to have a menopause similar to your mother's. So if you're kind of wondering what to expect, call mom and find out. But a lot of the symptoms that so menopause is just the cessation of menses, not, not being in your childbearing years anymore. That in and of itself is not any kind of a problem, but the problems that people come to me for are the hot flashes, night sweats, memory issues, low libido, irritability, um, just really not being able to form a complete thought. And that is some of the things that we can definitely help people with. And so in conventional medicine, their main tool is to give you hormones. And sometimes that's an appropriate thing. I think a lot of women these days don't really want to do that. Don't want to go on hormones. And I do use hormones in my practice too, but I, a lot of times we'll be able to help people through that using things naturally. And when we look at the things again, that are most powerful, when you look at things like reducing your stress and checking out your nutrition and especially like caffeine and sugar, if you've been really binging on those for your whole life, when you turn 48, you might not be able to anymore. You might not be able to have a couple glasses of red wine anymore and get to sleep at night. So there's a lot of things you can do um, just with what you're putting in your body on a daily basis that make an enormous difference in those symptoms. And then beyond that, there's also a lot of herbs that we use, a lot of nutrients that we use that are nutritional supplements or herbal preparations that can be very effective at helping mitigate those symptoms of brain fog, irritability, lack of sleep. And so there's just a variety of things depending on the person and what their whole process is everybody's menopause is a little bit different but those are kind of the main things that i see people for wow um and what about other hormonal issues or challenges that people are coming to you for like what are you mentioned fertility you mentioned pms like what are a couple common um challenges or symptoms and places to look yeah. So fertility is a great one. And we were talking about foods a lot before fertility is a great one for female infertility anyway. And, you know, there's a broad range of how that can be for people, but when women come to me and they've got what's called unexplained infertility, where they've been to their conventional doctor, they've had some testing done. Nobody can figure out why foods are a great place to look for that too. Because when you think about trying to let this little, we call it the little foreign invaders stay in your uterus, you know, your immune system is designed to get rid of foreign invaders. And so we're trying to let this one stay. If we can calm down your immune system a little bit. And a lot of times if you're having food sensitivities, that's really keyed up. Your immune system has gotten involved. And so we want to bring that out. And I have a lot of people that get pregnant just from doing a cleanse, doing a detox, doing food allergy testing, doing a little bit of hormonal balancing. We can do that with herbs really nicely, really gently and mm. doesn't interfere with pregnancy. So those are some of the main places I like to go with that. Wow. Okay. That's fantastic. Um, are there any others that we're missing? Are there any other common ones that, that come to mind? I would say mood stuff like anxiety, mm. anxiety and depression. Yes. Tell really me common. more. That that's a big one. And I think that's a big one that um I feel like, I mean, similar to other themes we're talking about, I think people just say, like, oh, I have anxiety blank. Like done, labeled, that's what it is forever. Um, or same with depression. So what do you do with that if somebody comes to you for anxiety for example or depression right and look at what they're eating i think that's all really important when you look at how your neurotransmitters are made we have it's so complex in the gut and how things are absorbed and how things are created so people that are having mostly coffee and not anywhere near enough protein 
we can definitely make a lot of shifts in how they feel by those things. Then we also look at hormonal impacts of that can be really big. We can adjust that with herbs. And then for the people that, you know, we've done all of this like supportive work and B12 deficiency. When we look at deficiencies, that's one of the most common ones. If we can sort out someone's B12 deficiency, it can make an enormous difference in how they feel. And a lot of people think of B12 for energy, like, oh, I'm going to give you 12 shot and feel really perky, which can happen for fatigue too. People come to see me for fatigue, but for calming B12 is a wonderful nutrient because when your immune system or when your adrenals don't have enough B12 and you're in that like fight or flight mode, B12 can just be really calming, can be such mm. a great nutrient, even though it can give you energy. It's never like a caffeinated thready energy. It's just like, Oh yeah. Okay, good. I feel good. I feel like throwing in another little laundry today. It's kind of no big deal. So, um, but beyond that, in terms of anxiety and depression, there's a lot of other herbs that can be really impactful. And then I also talk to people about meditation and being in nature and looking at their stress and having a therapist or a health coach or other people on their team that can help them move through those times and have more tools for dealing with it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've found and I've talked to other people in a variety of capacities on on and off the podcast about this, where it's just like continues to blow me away the benefits of spending quiet time in nature for your everything in your body. I was going to say for your mental health, but it's really for everything in your body. I'm just like, that's the simplest supplement we have is going outside in nature. Um I can't even stress that enough. It really is amazing. Like people joke, joke about tree huggers or forest bathing or stuff like that. It's like, it is real, real deal. And I think it goes against so much of our entire, not just medical industry and healthcare and all this, but our entire sort of larger wellness culture is it goes against that entire culture and the culture praises people for doing the most extreme, the most intense, doing the boot camp workouts or the hit classes or the whatever, and to slow down and go walk in nature and not think about your heart rate monitor and tracking calories. And if you can show off to your friend about how sweaty you are or whatever, and it's like the opposite of all that is actually the solution a lot of the time, but that's a hard sell for people it's much easier yeah. to be like, just do this boot camp right. you know it's an american it's right. very American just to like take time for yourself right and maybe go for a gentle hike or walk on a flat path where there's just lots of trees and birds and yeah it's really true it makes a huge difference it's one of the things that i think is really important for like general things that we can all do no matter what's going on with us is to spend time in nature meditate, move some movement is good. Maybe work on your core a little bit more. That's probably the one place where I could get people to do a little bit more work, especially as we age, but yeah, it's, it's really important. Yeah. And I think it's, it shifts and I don't want to go off on a tangent, even though I'm so tempted to, and I typically would, but I, I think what's interesting and I've experienced this in my own life and health journey with my own large amount of weight loss and all this stuff is shifting the focus from your body to your health as subtle as that sounds and I think when I say body I mean I think so much of it is okay I do this thing and then my body looks differently right like that to a lot of people is the manifestation of the work they're doing and if they don't see it visibly they don't care. And I think when you shift to this larger framework, it's kind of like, well, there are so many things that are good for your health that you won't physically necessarily see externally in your shape of your body, for example. And I think trying to shift um, between the two is like an interesting way to differentiate the types of tools we have and the types of activities we do for our health and wellness it's a really good point and when you look at sort of your whole being 
your body is part of that. And that's one of the things I think that naturopaths do a good job of looking at the whole person, not just your deltoids, but how is your entire being working and how is this impacting your digestive tract and what does your liver think about this and how is your mind with that? And there's just so many other things that kind of go into all of that. And, you know, yeah. just touched on stress a tiny little bit, but I would say this day and age in this culture, stress is such a big issue for so many people and how to deal with it and how to mitigate it. And I don't expect my patients to be able to just hop onto the desert island and forget about everything, but I do want them to learn how to manage it because most of my patients can't just quit their job, although I have convinced a couple people to do that. When they say that their job is killing them, I'm like, that's a really bad sign. <laughs> but I think that we can learn how to manage that and that can have such incredible benefits for everything. Like weight loss, you mentioned that, well, cortisol really impacts people's weight. So how can we bring your cortisol down? Well, you might have to slow down. It might not be five boot camps this week. It might be that gentle walk in nature and taking some deep breaths. Um, stress, I think is like the invisible weapon making everybody or so many people sick and similar to what we're talking about. Like if somebody is, for example, maybe it's a weight loss thing, or maybe it's some other symptom and you come to them and say, well, let's talk about your stress. A lot of people are like, no, 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 just give me the diet, give me the workout routine. I will go so hardcore, no problem. And it's like, all right, well, let's talk about your feelings instead. It's like, no, thanks. Not interested. You know, where, where does stress play into it? Is stress, I've heard people say stress is the root cause of up to 80% of illness. I've heard people say stress is the root cause of everything. Like where, where is stress in the body? How does that manifest in any of these different symptoms we're talking about? It's a really good point, Ethan. And I think a lot of people don't want to, don't want to talk about it because they don't know that they could deal with it. And I think it's incredibly impactful. I think the percentage is hard to gauge, but if you want to just kind of get down to something really physical, let's talk about people's adrenal glands. And a lot of people don't know what that is, but they're little tiny glands that sit on top of your kidneys, which is where they get their name, adrenal. And they're really important for helping us manage that. So when people talk to me about their lives, which I'm so empathetic for, like from childhood with some neglect or abuse to uh, difficult relationships to a job that has so much pressure, but they feel like they have to keep the job that that is really impactful on our psyche, our muscles, our nutrient absorption, and our adrenals are trying to manage all of that. And let's say you drink too much coffee and too much alcohol. So your B12 is really low. Your body's ability to deal with it in a, in a rational, good, positive, calm way is really, really low. And I think that that's one of the things where naturopathic medicine and adrenal function and stress is such a great fit that anybody that's dealing with that and feeling overwhelmed and feeling like they can't go on, there's so many, so many great herbs that are adrenal adaptogens. And an adaptogen is an herb that if your adrenal function is really low, is going to help nurture it and nourish it and boost it up and if your adrenal function is too high or there's some cortisol is too elevated it's going to help bring that down into a more balanced place that can really make a really big difference for people i think that's amazing and i think what you're talking about is just the connected nature of all of this right so stress on one end manifests itself in you know, this fight or flight and how that's affecting your nervous system and how that manifests. But then there's caffeine and then there's B12 and there's like all these different, like you're just talking about lifestyle to an actual thing you're consuming, like caffeine to a supplement, um, a nutrient like B12. Those are three different sort of categories that in the last 30 seconds you mentioned all together. So I think that highlights how this all works really uh definitely all works together and i think that that's one of the reasons why it it can take a while in somebody's visit to really get down to sort of the, the five things that we're going to start with to help them but the stress conversation is such an interesting one because i usually ask it's in people's intake form i ask everybody about that and it can be the second or third visit before we can really drill where they're really ready to to trust me with that or really drill down to that or really realize maybe they could be doing something differently so mm. it's a it's a 
it's a, it's an interesting situation. So we mentioned B12, shifting the supplements, shifting the supplements. Um, Again, obviously everybody's different. Obviously everybody's going to have different needs. We're not saying a blanket, anything for anybody, but what are some of the common, maybe deficiencies, (laughs) common uh, deficiencies people have, common nutrients, um, nutrient deficiencies, supplements people should look at? There are a lot of things. And when we look at the number of people with digestive issues, you know, there's a lot of deficiencies because if your body's not absorbing well or not eliminating well, there's just a lot of things. I think B vitamins, when there's digestive problems, B vitamins are probably the first ones to become low. So B12 is one we mentioned, but I'll put people on a really nice, complete B complex. And that can be really helpful for energy, hormones, fatigue, stress, all of those things. So when I look at sort of general blanket, what are my favorites? What do we use a lot of? A really good multi with a whole lot of Bs or a really good B complex that's got methylated forms of the nutrients, which just means that people with certain genetic SNPs can still absorb those. That's one of my favorite things. I think magnesium is one of the most safe, simple, fabulous minerals on the planet. Mm. And there's a few different types of magnesium. So in my practice, I'm mostly using a magnesium glycinate form, which is a little gentler on the stomach and a little more well-absorbed, but that can help with sleep and muscle pain and anxiety and blood pressure and headaches. So magnesium can be really, really wonderful. Um, I also use a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of fish oil. Those, you know, we can get a lot of these things from our food, right? So if people really want to drill down and make sure they're getting all these things, all these nutrients in their food, you can do that. And fish oil is one of the ones that I find most people, even people like me who really love fish, aren't getting enough of in their diet. And fish oil, you can get really great quality fish oils that aren't going to cause burping unless you've got other digestive stuff going on, which we can try to fix. But the the DHA portion of that, especially for people with memory problems or brain fog or even dementia can be really impactful. So mm. um, we, we definitely, and fish oil, you know, is going to help your heart and your brain and your mood. We use a ton for depression. High dose fish oil is great. Your skin, just so many things that it does in our body. So I, I really love that. I really love that as a nutrient. Okay. So magnesium, safe bet. Um, to look at probably some sort of B complex, not just B12. Um, I think that, you know, it's funny. I think that like most of the time, I feel like magnesium or B12 slash some sort of vitamin B complex is involved in somebody's healing in some way. Like regardless of what's going on, it seems to kind of point back to that. And there's not much that can go wrong with using those. They're very, very safe nutrients. I will say people have had B vitamin B6 associated neuropathies before. And then when you stop it, it should go away. So that's one thing to be aware of with the whole B complex. They're water soluble. So most of the time you're going to pee out whatever your body doesn't need. That's okay. Mm-hmm. I like to use the higher doses because I kind of like to flood people's cells with those B vitamins and, and see how that goes. But by and large, they're incredibly safe nutrients. I mean, if you get the wrong kind of magnesium, you can get diarrhea from it. Like the magnesium oxide can cause digestive problems, but, but by and large, there's not much interaction. I will say anybody that's on a blood thinner knows that everything interacts with that. So you've got to be careful with that, but, um, there's not much interaction with those. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. Um, last topic area. I really want to talk about big one is the future, the future of medicine, the future of medicine. We touched on it a little bit earlier, kind of the differences in this kind of stuff. You know, I think there is a larger shift happening in the culture for sure, where people are more curious or interested in naturopathic medicine, in acupuncture, in herbalism, in health coaches, in all of these kind of um, I don't, I don't know if alternative is the word, but in a wider range of treatment and care. And I think as that shifts happening, the challenge also becomes like we touched on earlier, still needing 
both sides of things at different points. The cost involved with all this is really tough for people. Um, but at the same time, I think people are starting to prioritize their health in a deeper way because they've been maybe disappointed with the treatment they've had in the past. Um, what does the future look like? It's a really incredible and difficult topic to bring up. And I have some uh, strong opinions about it. I think it's, I think that the United States has really gone very far afield for such a wealthy industrialized nation to have most of its population getting such crappy care. And I think that a lot of doctors went into medicine because they want to help people and they want to help people figure things out, but because the way things are set up now and they have to see 45 people a day, they seriously, it, it, it's, it's a very, very tricky situation. And I think that for things to really become a lot better, people have to let go of the notion that my health insurance is what governs my wellness and my situation. And it's, it's, it's such a, difficult thing people are so divorced from what things cost so if you go to your conventional doctor now you show up go have your visit you might get a bill three months later i recently got a bill from a year ago which is like wow. you would make different decisions if you go to buy a car you get to know what it costs even if you go to the grocery store to buy your vegetables or your twinkies at least you know what it costs in that moment and i think if people really knew what the cost is because a lot of us are paying for health insurance a lot of money every month or your your bosses instead of giving you that cash is paying this health insurance so it's like people have this separation that my oh my insurance should take care of that or if my insurance doesn't cover it i'm not going to do it and it's such a wrong-headed notion because like i said in the beginning your insurance company doesn't give a crap if you're healthy or not they give a crap what their bottom line is and so it's a money-making profit-driven industry when it should not be. People's health should not be. And I think that, so the future of healthcare, which I could be more optimistic about this, like you said, that people are really trying to find other modalities that help them, that really get to the bottom of their problems and help them to feel better. And that is a really great thing. There are certainly states in, the, in our union where people's insurance covers naturopathic medicine which I think it's great for the person who's paying for the insurance. I don't really love somebody governing what I can test for and what I can use as a nutrient. I think that's one of the things that we get into with these insurance companies It's that they decide what you can do and what you can't do. So you, I feel that it should be the, between the patient and the doctor. You said something so spot on. I couldn't agree with everything you just said more, but you said something so interesting. You said, I think the problem is people using their health insurance and their health insurance to govern basically their wellness as a person. And that is so true. I hadn't really thought of it that way before, where it's almost like, well, I have health insurance. I'm supposed to be fine now, right? And then the lifestyle is not healthy. And the assumption is that, well, as long as you have health insurance, just don't not have health insurance, whatever you do, have health insurance. And it's like, okay, does that make you healthy? Not really, you know? And it's like a face or it's like a fake safety net. It's like a, it's, it makes you feel better to have it. Yeah. It's not actually doing that much most of and the it's, time. And it's still really expensive. I had somebody telling me about a new drug that came out for Alzheimer's. It's like $26,000 a year, but maybe health insurance will pay for all but like $8,000 of it. It's like, no, I'll pay for the, I'll, you know, we'll all pay for all of that. It's not like that's some pie in the sky drug God that's going to, that's going to mitigate that cause. We're all going to pay for that, you know? Yeah. So, that's the thing about that separation between what you're paying. There's nothing else in our culture in this capitalistic society where you don't know what it's going to cost and you can't shop around for what the best deal is, or maybe it's not the best deal. It's the best quality, but it's much more expensive. And that's the choice you get to make, but you're right. It's so not, it, it gives you that false sense of like, Oh, my health's going to be okay now. Cause I have this program. Yeah. And what you said also is fascinating is that that's true. We're separated from the actual cost. You kind of go, 
And then a few months later, you get a bill and you're like, what was this for? Why am I paying this? Like what? I didn't, I don't feel better. Right. If you don't feel better and it's a lot, it's yeah. not like it's this small. It's not like it's twenty five dollars. Like two hundred dollars. Right. Like extremely large amount of money, and you forget what it was for, and you still have the same issue most of the time. But I think to your point, in a positive, what you said is also true, which is people going to medical school to be doctors want to help people. I have lots of friends who are doctors. I know, and they're like amazing people, and they want to help. And then you watch the process happen, and they're just so burnt out by the system basically that they can't possibly be of service to the extent they could if they actually had um the support and capacity that they sort of needed and want to give you know it's like they they want to help in a way that a lot of the times they're not able to help so they're not necessarily happy they're burnt out People are spending too much money, not getting the support they need, and then still not learning the basic tools on a day-to-day -day basic basis outside of anybody's office that they can be doing to just be healthy and feel good. Correct. And even grow things. You know, we're so lucky here to have this climate that you can grow herbs in your backyard that can help with your skin condition. You can grow fruits and vegetables that can help nourish your body. And that microbiome is the key to everything. You know, I was, I was listening to a, a speaker not long ago who said that you need to have 30 different living things a day consumed to really have a healthy microbiome. And when you look at like prevention in this seat of your health, your microbiome is really it's kind of the kingpin of that, right? And so just th that, that kind of gets you out in nature and you're growing things and you're consuming all the stuff that's going to help your body absorb nutrients better. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that more and more people are focusing on some of those things rather than, you know, making yeah. sure your, your insurance is taking care of your health. <laughs> um, final question. I ask everybody this every guest to close it out. So we've covered um, actually an unbelievable amount today. We've covered a lot, which is beautiful. Um, putting it all together, the final question is, how would you define true health? True health, in my opinion, is the absence of disease, which that word, if you drill down, dis-ease, is the lack of ease in the body. And when you look at it that way, it might be fixing your IBS, but it is also making sure that you're getting a good night's sleep and that you can wake up in the morning and have a smile on your face and not be freaking out about everything that's going on in your life or one thing that's going on in your life. So it's really looking at the entire person and everything that you colors your world. And I think that's really where true health comes from. And if that doesn't start with sleep and food and being in nature, then I don't know what it does start with. That's amazing. Um, I totally agree. And it's beautiful. Thank you so much. I told you this at the beginning, but I think you are brilliant. Um, no, I think the work you're doing so is like, the work you're doing is so needed and valuable. Um, and I know anybody listening to this will probably have pages of notes. Um, so <laughs> well, thank you. Awesome. So much, it's really, really been a pleasure to talk with you. And it's definitely a topic I'm obviously very passionate about. So thank yeah. you for having me and letting me share some of my thoughts. Of course. Thank you. Anybody listening, I'm going to put links um, to Sarah, to her practice in the show notes, reach out. Um, she is the greatest, a miracle worker. And um, thank you. I will. Talk to you soon.